there, Spookies. Welcome to Season 2 of the Appalachian Spooky Hour Podcast. It's nice to be back, and I think we've got a really great season lined up for all of you. Our goal this year is to bring you longer, more in-depth episodes, with a few featured guests and a couple of special episodes. That said, let's jump into this week's episode and talk about the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum, located in Weston, West Virginia. Originally called the Weston State Hospital, it took over 20 years to complete the building that we now know as Trans-Allegheny. Construction began in 1858 and continued until 1881, designed in what was known as the Kirkbride Plan. The Kirkbride Plan was more or less a system of mental asylum design that was advocated for by American psychiatrist Thomas Story Kirkbride in the mid-19th century. They were often referred to as Kirkbride buildings. You may have heard of that before if you're into historical buildings, haunted buildings, architecture. It was a popular design for mental health facilities Though it eventually fell out of favor, you don't see buildings built like this today in our you know, modern time. Thomas Kirkbride felt that there were specific structural features that were necessary in healing mentally ill patients. These things included exposure to natural light and good air circulation. Though the hospitals didn't necessarily all look the same architecturally, they mostly featured a batwing-style floor plan with various wings that extended outward from the center of the structure. These facilities were immense and would eventually become difficult to maintain. That is important to know when talking about Trans-Allegheny and the horrors that would eventually unfold there as time went on. The building opened for patients in 1864, while parts were still under construction. It is possible that the building would have been finished sooner than 1881, but the outbreak of the Civil War in 1861 waylaid plans and put work on hold. There was a lot going on at this time, including the state of Virginia, where the hospital originally sat, seceding from the Union. Funds were taken from the hospital to funnel into the war effort, though money was eventually put back into the hospital and work continued in 1862. In 1863, West Virginia broke free and became an independent state, which is when the hospital underwent its first name change. The Weston State Hospital instead became known as the West Virginia Hospital for the Insane, And isn't that just a lovely name? If there's one thing we've gotten better at as time has gone on, it's making things less obtuse. You know, like, you don't call mental health facilities hospitals for the insane. And, you know, we all know now they never should have been called that. But I digress. The hospital and the grounds covered 666 acres of land a nice ominous number, and was originally intended to be self-sufficient. Let me just say here, I have seen the number 666 acres thrown around multiple places, 
Some have it a few acres less. Some have it a few acres more. We're just going to go with 666 because that just really lends itself to the story here. But um, yes, it was originally intended to be self-sufficient. The land included a dairy farm, waterworks, and a cemetery that were all part of the facility. This was not just a place intended to house people and forget them. It was more like a rehabilitation center, helping them to find a use for themselves in addition to getting help for their mental health, which is really what Kurt Bride pushed for. These were places with fresh air, lots of light, things to do, things to focus on. It was never meant to just be a place where you were locked away and nobody remembered you existed. In those days, patients were sent to asylums for all sorts of reasons. A lot of reasons that we would certainly balk at today. Asthma egotism, domestic issues, and general laziness were all considered valid reasons for being institutionalized. I I am a person who suffers from anxiety and depression. I've never had to be in a facility for these problems, thankfully, but a lot of people do. And, you know, those are things, you know, we can't help. They're things... The doctor can't just give you something all the time and it goes away. Asthma. (laughs) Like, that has nothing to do with mental health. In a basic sense. I'm not saying that, like, an anxiety attack can't trigger an asthma attack in somebody who is asthmatic. But I think you guys get what I'm saying here. They would lock you up for having asthma. Because people could be admitted for just about anything, and everything, this pretty quickly led to staffing shortages and lack of beds. Can you imagine being asthmatic and being sent off to an asylum? Taking a bed from someone who genuinely could have needed it. There was just so much we didn't know then, and it led to some pretty dismal situations at best. The hospital was built to house 250 patients, but by 1913, keep in mind, it only opened in 1881, the hospital changed names back to Weston State Hospital, and they were already facing issues of overcrowding. By the 1930s, the place was in pandemonium, with out-of-control patients running wild. The orderlies struggled to keep control And they were vastly outnumbered. This is when things really began to turn sour. By the year 1935, the hospital had become completely unhinged. Some residents set fire to the fourth floor of the building, completely destroying it. I did try to find out how they got hold of materials to start a fire, and while I found nothing concrete, It isn't hard to imagine that they likely just took what they needed for the job, considering there weren't enough people to watch them and keep track of their activities. This could have been as simple as stealing matches out of someone's purse that they left behind the desk. We just don't know. In another disturbing scene, two patients tried to hang a third resident using their bedsheets. When that failed... 
they instead crushed his head with a metal bed frame, leading to his death. In a third incident, a nurse went missing and was found two months later, dead at the bottom of an unused staircase. That alone should tell you how bad the situation was. She was missing for two months inside this building before she was finally found. There simply was not enough staff to sweep all parts of the hospital, and a dead body lay festering unattended all that time. It's almost unimaginable. I know accidents happen even today. Things happen. You know, it just can't be helped. That's just part of human nature. Things happen. It would be very rare to have somebody go missing in a working hospital and just be unaccounted for for two months and nobody able to find them. Like, you just, that's, I just can't even wrap my mind around that. By the 1950s, the hospital housed 2,400 patients, which is 10 times the number it was initially intended to house. Remember, it was built to hold 250 people. There were 2,400. 2,400 people. Not 250. Local media caught wind of the situation and began to dig into the living conditions and crime committed at the facility. It should also be pointed out here that lack of proper care and lack of access to sanitation led to quite a few deaths at the asylum. There's no official count of deaths available, but from what I've found, historians believe that between 400 and 500 people died while housed in the facility. That's a lot of people. Like, just think about that. Think about the number of years it was open. 400 to 500 estimated deaths. Could have been a lower number. Could have been a higher number. Still too many. It was also during this tumultuous time that the hospital became home to the West Virginia Lobotomy Project. This was the state of West Virginia and Walter Freeman's answer to overcrowding. Lobotomies could reduce the number of patients in asylums, thus eventually improving conditions. Clearly, this did not work. You guys, I wish that I could find better words to describe to you the things that were going on in this hospital. I'll just have to make do with what I know and hope that the horror of this place comes across to you even a little bit. It was absolutely deplorable. I know that we haven't even dove into the paranormal aspects of this place yet, but let me tell you this. What people were doing to other people here was far scarier than any ghost story could ever convey. Patients were crammed into rooms meant for only one or two people, forced to share tight quarters with four or five people. This also included violent patients who were stuffed into cages and then placed into rooms, an act meant to keep the others safe from their outburst. People 
in cages. Mentally ill people who are there to get help are put in cages to keep others safe while they're all crammed in a room together because they've taken on too many patients. There was often a lack of food and the place was absolutely disgusting. Hygiene and sanitation went out the window due to overcrowding and lack of staff. People often reported that the place smelled like a barnyard, reeking of feces and body fluids. Treatments were really just types of torture, including ice water baths, bloodletting, insulin coma therapy, confinement to cribs in addition to cages, and electroshock therapy. Then there were the lobotomies. The aforementioned Walter Freeman was a doctor more commonly known as the father of the lobotomy. He specifically performed the ice pick lobotomy. This involved shoving an ice pick through a patient's orbital socket into their brain. This was supposed to calm the patient down, but in most cases, it rendered them permanently disabled. They suffered traumatic brain damage from this procedure. These patients were reduced to drooling shells of their former selves. This procedure was so obscenely common that during a single two-week period in the 1950s, they performed 228 ice pick lobotomies at Trans-Allegheny. 228 in one week. I, I, I can't even begin to wrap my mind around this. There were so few beds for the number of patients that they were forced to sleep in shifts. Patients were often left naked in dirty wards with unclean bathroom facilities smeared with feces. People were sometimes tied or chained to beds or objects, and there were many cases of rape, suicides, and even more murders. The press reported on this initially in the 1950s, but nothing happened until a follow-up piece appeared in 1992. That was when the government finally made the move to shut the place down. Though it did not happen for two more years when the doors closed for the last... Knowing all of this, it isn't hard to understand how people claim that the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum is one of the most haunted places in the world. How could a place that saw so much torture, pain, and suffering not be? There were patients locked up in the asylum just because their family simply didn't want to deal with them. A husband could have his wife sent away there for women's troubles and go about living his life free as a bird, not caring what atrocities she was suffering so long as she was out of his hair. There have been a lot of reports of paranormal activity over the building's 100-plus year history, many of which were even reported while the building was still open and active. 
there were supposedly workers who quit after hearing squeaky wheels like those of a gurney rolling along empty hallways. Other staffers reported seeing ghosts walk through the walls, and one doctor even claimed that a ghost followed her home and continues to haunt her even now. But you know what? I think she probably deserves that, given the fact that she was working in a place that was absolutely vile and treated patients so poorly. Honey, you could have pushed for change or to have the place closed down, but you didn't. Or at least you didn't as far as I know, so I'm still going to say you deserve that one. There is one interesting entity here that some of you may have heard of before. It's called the Creeper. And it's a shadow-like figure that climbs walls and crawls across the ceiling. I say that this in particular is interesting because this is not the first place I've heard tell of the Creeper. We'll be discussing it again in the episode about Waverly Hills, and that leads me to wonder if this type of being, whatever it is, is attracted to places of great suffering. Does it feed off that negative energy? Either way, there are so many reports of the creeper being spotted in the asylum. Doors are said to open and close by themselves, and maniacal laughter can sometimes be heard coming from empty patient rooms. A woman named Ruth supposedly haunts the first floor, throwing objects at male visitors. She's reported to have hated men while living, and has carried that into the afterlife. The third floor is haunted by two spirits, one known as Big Jim, and the other as a nurse named Elizabeth. I haven't been able to find any confirmation of the name of the nurse that was found dead at the bottom of the staircase, but I do wonder if this could be her. Is she trapped forever in this horrible place where she died and lay unfound for all those weeks? The most famous ghost is that of a young girl named Lily. She was only nine years old when she died of pneumonia at the asylum in her room on the fourth floor. It is believed that her mother was a patient in the facility and gave birth there to Lily. She lived her entire young life inside the stone walls of the hospital and is still there even now. Her room is filled with toys and balls and dolls that reportedly move on their own. There's also a music box that will turn itself on at random like an invitation to come and play. I did do some digging. I could not find anything fully confirming that Lily existed or was the child of a patient there. I won't say it's impossible, given that a lot of people were left in facilities like these for months or years. It is very possible that she came there pregnant, gave birth to her child there, and, you know, continued on under their care and raised her baby. I, I don't really know for sure. I can't give you full confirmation of that, but it's sad. And, you know, we know that children were raised in other types of facilities, like sanitariums. You know, people went in sick. They were pregnant. They would have a child if they had a disease like tuberculosis. You know, the child couldn't leave. They were exposed. 
they had playgrounds and, and toys. You know, they had children's wards as well where there were children who had these diseases, but, you know, some were there as children's and patients or, you know, nurses and doctors who lived and worked there. So I won't say that Lily didn't exist. It is entirely possible that she did. And if that story is true, how sad that a, a little kid had to endure what was going on here. It's bad enough they put adults through this horror. But a child, you know, this was this was no place for a kid. There's just so much we could talk about when it comes to Trans-Allegheny. It's horrors and it's haunts. And just the crimes committed against other people. If you're so inclined, you can find a lot more information online, including photos. If you are easily triggered by images, then I do not recommend you look them up. They are stomach-turning at best, and they will stay with you for a long time after you view them. This period in history, and it wasn't just at Trans-Allegheny, but other hospitals like it, really showed the worst of humanity. And it didn't start out that way. You know, nobody starts working as an orderly in a hospital like this thinking it's going to turn out like that. And then administration goes awry. They just let too many people in and things fall apart. And it's sad that it had to be that way. You know, this is a mark on Appalachia. This this happened here. And it's, it's a sad thing. And I can absolutely see why this place would be as haunted as they say that it is. Because horrible, horrible things leave behind a scar. And those are some of the things that got left behind at Trans-Allegheny after all was said and done. So, on that somber note, um, that's all for this week, Spookies, and I hope that you enjoyed the episode. As of now, we'll be posting every other week, and this season has so much great content. I seriously cannot wait to get in deeper. We've got a great special episode coming up about Waverly Hills, and um, my personal experience there, which, uh, like, I can't wait to share it with you guys. I'm hoping maybe this fall to do a live episode from somewhere haunted in Appalachia. I don't know yet. Um, maybe do something at the Mothman Festival in Point Pleasant. We'll just have to see as the year goes on. But um, season two is going to take us into the spring and early summer. And I'm just really excited to be back. So until next time, stay spooky. And remember, don't go in the woods after dark.